13 to verse 17. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Before I read that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this morning as we come before you, we come before your word. We know, Lord, these are the words of God. These are not the words of men. You used men to write them, but you protected them. And you brought them down to us so we can know that when we read our Bible, we're reading God's word. When we hear the Bible preached, we know we're listening and hearing from God. So I pray, Lord, that you would make us attentive and, Lord, allow us to take seriously the things that are being heard so we can put them into practice. Lord, engraft upon our soul this morning an understanding of how Christ was the friend of sinners so we, too, may be the friend of sinners. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use this time to bring glory and honor to your name, to grow and expand your saints, and I pray, Lord, ultimately to move us to get the gospel to those who have never heard it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this morning, as I back up a little bit and uh, let you know where I came from, where I'm going, Mark is, remember... Uh, portrays Jesus Christ as a servant king. Uh, of, of course, a servant king in whom he's getting his disciples to uh, follow him and show them what they're to do when the Lord ascends into heaven and leaves and leaves the rest of the work for his church. And that's of course, goes for us too, that we're looking at Christ and we're understanding not only what the gospel is, but what he's teaching us we ought to do. So, so far we have seen Jesus Christ in his authority, in his teaching, and his authority over demons. We've, had, we've experienced Jesus as the perfect servant who cares about the physical and spiritual needs of people without, of course, being sidetracked from his main mission. And you'll find throughout the Gospels that the main mission of Jesus Christ is actually to preach the gospel of the kingdom. We saw Jesus also demonstrate his power of compassion to overcome uncleanness as represented by leprosy. And last time, we experienced the right and the might of Jesus, the Son of Man, that Jesus has authority and his right to forgive sins while on earth. Now, only by the power of God can sins be forgiven. Only by the power of God at the same time can a paralytic instantly be restored and get up and walk away. Both of those display the power of God. One was invisible, one was visible. Today, in our text, in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, We see Jesus as a friend of sinners. So the challenge for Christ's disciples is to learn and practice to be a friend of sinners like Jesus was a friend of sinners. Now, let me read the text. Verse number 13 of chapter 2. 
it says he went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them as he passed by he saw levi the son son of alphaeus sitting in the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he got up and followed him and it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he drinking, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, chronologically, this account follows the healing of the paralytic. Jesus was now staying away from populated areas because of what happened there. Remember, he told the paralytic... uh, Well, anyway, uh, Jesus was now pushed into the desolate areas. If you go back to chapter 1, verse number 45, you'll see there it says, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the news around. That's uh, And to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. So from that passage of Scripture, we see that even though Jesus was in a desolate place, the people kept coming to him. From all sides they kept coming to him. They kept coming to him to hear his teaching because it was so electrifying, so convicting, so not from men but from God. They came to be healed both physically and spiritually. They came out of curiosity. They They came in great numbers to hear Jesus Christ. So in our text today, we see Jesus is again going out among the people with those who needed a touch, who needed his teaching. And if you notice again in verse number 13, look at where we we find Jesus next. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, And he was teaching them. Now, to get a sense of what is happening here, the terms, all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them, are used to describe what was happening for some time. Sometimes you read through something, you think it just happened like that. But the imperfect tense of the verb here indicates a recurring action. That is coming and going of successive groups of hearers and Jesus constantly as they were coming and going teaching them he was teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching so you see Jesus was busy carrying on his main work and that main work was teaching and even though our text does not mention specifically the content of Jesus teaching We already know what the content is from Mark chapter 1, that Jesus was teaching them about the good news. Jesus is, of course, remember, 
a public teacher with a message for the masses of people, for all peoples. So remember, the Gospel of Mark is a historical narrative concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation. That's right in Mark chapter 1, verse number 1. And then in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it was after John the Baptist was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So don't forget, Jesus' teaching consists of repentance and believing. Repentance and believing in the good news from God in what the Father was doing in the world in and through Jesus Christ. So this is very, a really a historical event when Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee to bring the message of the gospel to that region which spreads through the whole of the world and comes right down even to us today. We have the same message that is being preached. So we must repent. We must believe. These two are never divorced from one another. Repentance is the soul's divorce from sin. But it will always be joined to faith. And remember, faith is, is, is the casting of one's soul upon Christ when the gospel is offered. Faith is likened to drinking Christ. It's likened to looking to Christ, to fleeing to Christ, to following Christ. And then once you flee, and once you look, and once you follow Christ, once you do that, you can't look back. There's nothing to look back to. The only thing you could do is believe in Christ and go forward. Right? And to do the work God has for us to do, and then until God takes us out of here and takes us to heaven, which is the promise that we have in the Gospel, because the Gospel brings us eternal life. So then, the terms of entry into the kingdom of God are repentance and faith. No one can enter the kingdom of God without repentance, without fleeing from sin and putting trust in Christ alone. This is how the Lord Himself did evangelism. This is what He is doing here in His constant teaching. He announced the gospel and he said, in essence, your response must be to repent and believe. Of course, I have to ask you something. Have you repented? Have you done that? Have you repented of your sins? And whatever you were trusting in, to believe in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? For God to give you His righteousness and for Him to allow you entryway into the kingdom of God? Have you done that? You, that's an honest question we must all ask ourselves. Have we done that? In other words, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Would you go into the kingdom of God? Would you go into the presence of God? Or would you slip off into an eternity hoping that you would go to heaven and finding out you didn't make it? Because you can't make it on your own. You can't make it on your own righteousness. You must make it on 
someone else's righteousness, and that's the right, righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the question that Jesus is posing to everyone who comes to hear his teaching. And that's the question today. It hasn't changed. So once again in our text, verse number 13, and he went out again by the seashore, and the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. So the principle that we can glean from Jesus practically here is to reach the lost. We have to be with the lost. And you have to share the gospel. So, who's going to do that? Who's going to reach the lost? Those who haven't heard the message of the gospel yet. The message of repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. We are the ones who are given that mandate. We are the ones who are to take the gospel to those who haven't, who has, they haven't heard it yet. So if we follow Jesus' example, he went to them by the seashore where they were, and he was with the lost, and while he was with the lost, he was teaching them the gospel. That's a, that's a pretty simple thing to do. Uh, that's what we're to do. It's not complicated. But see, the problem is that we need to do it. But here's the problem. I want to pose a problem to you. The problem that happens to all Christians as they are in the faith year after year, they actually start losing contact with unbelievers, don't they? Now, you see, there's a real danger that takes place without us even knowing it. And what is it? Well, we all desire to be godly. We all desire to separate ourselves from the world and that is what we ought to pursue and do. However, while we are doing that, we start arranging our lives so that we are not with non-believers more and more. Uh, in other words, we are, we are with unbelievers less and less as we move into the faith and we get more involved with it. This is how it usually plays out. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian. We attend Sunday school that's 100% Christian usually. We plan our social activities and our sporting events with 100% Christians. We have Christian doctors and Christian uh, dentists and Christian contractors and Christian mechanics, to name a few. And we choose to homeschool and to send our kids to Christian school we ate, we, when we eat out, we eat out most of the time with Christians. And so we insulate ourselves from unbelievers. Now, we don't necessarily do that purposely or consciously. It just happens. See, so, so don't get me wrong. None of the things that I just mentioned are wrong to do. But never, nevertheless, to hedge against pharisaical the pharisaical practice of keeping yourself away from unbelievers, then in our everyday lives we must remain cognizant of unbelievers that we are passing by every day without ever planning to influence them for Christ or to give them the message of the gospel. Sometimes we think, well, somebody else will do that. But see, we can't live like that 
the Lord doesn't want us to live like that. If we're going to take the example of Jesus Christ, we must change what we do and plan differently. So instead, remember, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. But nonetheless, we're in the world, and the Lord left us here. We have a multiple of different cultures all around us. We know people who are lonely and hurting. We all know people who think they're doing fine, and at the same time, without realizing it, they are on a slippery slide right into hell. So to engage the problem, our desire should be to grow strong enough spiritually that we will not be repulsed by or influenced by the sinner's bad behavior so that we can reach out to people with whom we work, we can reach out to our neighbors, our unsafe family members, to go out to dine with them, to attend different events with them, to get involved with them without compromising our commitment to the community of believers and the Word of God and without being influenced by the bad lifestyles of those we're witnessing to. See, we must be aware of that. In other words, that we believers would be sanctified by truth enough in order to be influ- an influence for Christ while living in this disposal or on this disposable, dark, sin-cursed earth. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Let me just reiterate his prayer. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that's his disciples, but that you would keep them from the evil one. So that means strong enough as a believer to put on the armor of God, to stand up all against all the wiles of Satan that he can throw at you, and to be able to, when the smoke clears and the bullets stop flying, to still be standing and still be standing with the message to have your feet shod with the message of the gospel of peace. You're ready, no matter what happens, to give the gospel. Because I tell you what, when you intend to give the gospel, you will run into opposition. You will run into trouble because Satan doesn't want you to give the gospel to anyone. And so you will have resistance. And the resistance may be quite significant. So don't ever underestimate that when you go and plan to give the gospel, something happens to stop you. Something very significant happens to deter you. But let me finish the prayer. Jesus says that I pray that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he says this, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. So see, the word of God is going to make you strong enough to be able to witness to the wickedest of unbelievers and in their sin and not be affected by that. And not be diverted in your mission or have your attention drawn somewhere else. So today, let's take our example, the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, the true servant king who brings into his company the most despised and wretched of sinners. And please don't forget, we can include ourselves in that category because we were the despised, we were the wretched sinners, and thankfully, we are forgiven sinners 
through the scandal of amazing grace. That God's grace is so amazing, it really doesn't matter how much someone has sinned, how long they have sinned, how deep they are in sin, that the grace of God cannot reach down and snatch them. But we are the mouthpieces. You and I are the mouthpieces. The Lord did not send angels down to witness to the world. He sent you and I. Yes, we do feel inadequate for the task. I always do. But I don't even think about that much either. I just do it, right? Just do it. That's the point. Just do it and tell what you know, and Lord is going to use you uh, to bring those who don't know Christ to a saving knowledge of Christ. Not everyone, but the ones that He has chosen. So the grace of God should lead us, like Jesus, to be a friend of sinners. So let's learn three things. Three things Jesus does to befriend sinners. And here's the first thing. In Mark chapter 2, verse number 14, we see that Jesus calls the most dubious to follow him. In other words, the focus is not the sinful character of the person, but the grace of God that saves. Now look at verse number 14. It says he's talking about a tax man. Now, a tax man even today doesn't have a good rep. Right? Tax season, isn't it? You're doing your taxes right now. You could have done it. I don't, I don't do them until like next week. But anyway, I'm not encouraged to do my taxes. I don't like to do my taxes. I don't like to get all those receipts together. Right? And it seems like every time I do them, there's something I miss, and they write me back and say, well, wait a minute, you owe this much more. And so the tax man today still doesn't have a good rep. So let's look at the text, verse 14. It says, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. Now let me just stop right there. Now remember, uh, from Matthew chapter 9, it says in verse number 9, remember, Levi is actually Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, and Jesus passed on from there and saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. So Levi is Matthew. Matthew is Levi. They're both the same person. All right? Don't get those mixed up. But in, in the ancient world, tax gatherers were not only unpopular and despised and were hated, and the reason why they were is because tax collectors extracted as much as they could from the people they were exacting payments from. And in this situation, it was travelers arriving at Capernaum from either the territory of Herod Philip and that of Decapolis from the east and from the north. And Levi, Matthew, was sitting in his tax, at his tax station with his tax book open and his pen in hand. And as you approached him, all right, then he would make his calculations. He was ready to collect taxes, usually on transported goods, moving down through Israel. Levi was, was most likely a local tax collector in the service of the Romans under Herod Antipas and the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. 
Levi, though, was an ethnic Jew, but he most likely was not an observant Jew. Since Torah-conscious Jews could not be expected to do business with Gentiles. So since the Roman tax system was already riddled with dishonesty, corruption was very common, and as long as the Roman government received their agreed amount of tax, the tax gatherer could take whatever he wanted and would often take more than he needed. Now, this is how it usually worked that the tax collector would go to the Roman government and bid for a certain section that he would sit at his booth or his office. All right, So he would say, listen, I'm going to charge, the Roman government wants 100 uh, shekels, right? and I'm going to charge 120 shekels. So as long as the Roman government got the 100 shekels, they didn't care what more that tax collector charged. So you can see, if someone gave you an you know, like a blank check, it would, it seemed like maybe initially it wouldn't be abused, but it would get abused because you can charge anything you want. And if you didn't like the person that came to your tax booth, you couldn't even charge them more. So see, it was rank corruption. So that means that tax collectors were looked at by the people as great sinners, morally contemptuous, and also ritually unclean. Now, that's, that was significant. So it, it affected their, their occupation affected them socially, and it affected them religiously, right? It cut them off. But they did that, of course, on their own. They cut themselves off for the love of money, for the love of power, to be able to manipulate people like that. And so contact with Levi, a tax collector was actually more offensive than contact with a leper because a leper didn't have a choice in their leprosy. A tax collector had a choice to either be one or not be one. But you notice how he could suck you in and pull you in. It was such a lucrative business that you can charge whatever you want and you could keep charging and keep getting money and nobody would challenge you as long as Roman got... Rome got their government, nobody would challenge you. So you actually had a free reign to do what you want. So you can see how unpopular a person like that would be to the population and especially to the religious ruling class there in Israel. So contact, remember what Levi, a tax collector, would have really put people in a place where they would be actually... uh, unclean if they did business with him. In other words, nobody wanted to be in the company of a tax collector. They didn't want to have anything to do with them besides whatever official dealings they had to do with that person. Other than that, they're not going to invite that person over to dinner. They're not going to invite that person into their home. They're not going to invite that person into their circle of friends. They're not going to invite that person to their synagogue. They're not going to invite that person anywhere. In fact, they didn't want anything to do with tax collectors. So here's the scandal of grace. Take notice of how outrageous the scandal of God's grace could be perceived. Now, why is that? Because Jesus wanted a man in whom no one wanted. He called the man with a dubious character 
who was despised by the people and especially by the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And notice in verse number 14, the rest of the passage, it says, And he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. The words actually, the Greek words, follow, is used in the Gospels only of Jesus' disciples. In other words, he was saying to Levi, follow me as a disciple. Follow me as someone who would be a learner. It's never, this word is never used of those who opposed Christ. There were, it was all, it's always used of those who would follow Christ, willingly. So follow is actually a load-bearing term that describes the proper response of faith. Following is an act that involves risk and cost. It is something one does not simply of what one thinks and believes. It's like what is recorded in Luke on this passage. It says, and he left everything behind and he rose and began following him. He left everything. He left his lucrative business. He le- and remember, once someone leaves that business, they cannot go back to it because it was such a sought-after position. If you decided to get out, there was no way to get back in. So see, the summons to follow Jesus as a disciple may seem abrupt, However, Jesus had been teaching, as I mentioned, for a long time to bring attention within the thoughts of men who were listening to his teaching, and obviously Levi was. Maybe Jesus was in earshot of his booth, and he would teach to bring their minds to a crisis point about the gospel about the Son of Man, about the Kingdom of God, about forgiveness of sins, about repentance of faith. That's what, that's what the preaching does. It, it arrests people. It, it challenges their mind. And it brings their mind to a crisis point. And that crisis point is this. Either I believe in Jesus Christ and get into the Kingdom of God, or I continue making a lot of money and die and never get into the Kingdom of God. See, that is the crisis point everybody comes to. But you notice here that Levi had to leave a lot to follow Christ. Once this tax collector abandoned his lucrative position, he could not later return to it. And a disciple joined themselves to a teacher to acquire their teaching. But we notice that Levi was not only attracted to Jesus' teaching, but he was attracted to Jesus' person. He was attracted to who Jesus was. So see, the scandal of grace is that God would choose someone who no one wanted, who no one considered, who no one would befriend who no one would approach after doing business with them, who would know, who, no one who would invite them into their home. So Jesus does something. And the second thing Jesus does to befriend sinners is Jesus calls the most despicable to fellowship with him. Look at verse number 15. It says this, And it happened that he, that's Jesus, 
was reclining at the table in his, that's Levi's, house. And remember, reclining at the table reflected the Greco-Roman practice of laying prostrate around the table while one leaned on their left elbow and used their right hand for eating. It was a very leisurely. They would actually be laying down around a very low table, and they would be resting on, on their, uh, their head on their uh, hand, and then they would be eating with the other hand. It was a very relaxed. It was a very comfortable, but it was a very... It, it was a leisurely meal, but it was a picture, and everybody knew it, of fellowship, of intimate fellowship. You did not do that with anybody. You did that with family. You did that with those who were closest to you. You did that with your neighbors. And you usually did that after the synagogue service. You would go to one's house, and everybody would be there. And, of course, they would be around the table reclining and having very intimate and close conversation. So to have a leisurely meal was one that was very significant in that culture. However, if you noticed, if you noticed the people that Jesus was participating in this meal with, it says in verse 15, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. You don't do this. This is breaking all protocol. And Levi being somewhat wealthy, of course, that's a given, right? He had a house big enough and spacious enough to accommodate a crowd and probably had several rooms. But what he's doing here, he's kind of giving a, conver a conversion reception. That's what he's doing. Hey, something happened to me in my life. I'm going to invite all my tax collector friends, if they could be called friends. So he invites them with Jesus and Jesus' disciples that already became his disciples into his home. And the feast, remember, was obviously Levi's method of introducing his former associates to his newfound master, Jesus Christ. So Jesus welcomed Levi to a participation in his companionship. And this scandalized the Pharisees and the scribes. Since table fellowship was regarded as a sign and a pledge of real intimacy, they regarded Jesus' action as a scandal. The Pharisees felt that Jesus' eating openly with sinners was a clear violation of the Old Testament and the standard of a godly man and a righteous man. In fact, remember what it says in Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. They were considering Jesus here as someone who was intimately dining with people that were making him unclean. And that was definitely something you did not do. You can't miss the significance of the rest of the attendees who showed up, and it says here in large numbers, verse 15, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, 
and there were many of them, and they were following him. See, Jesus was actually eating a meal with social outcasts who were considered unclean, therefore forbidden to have contact with. And this placed Jesus in sharp contrast to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders, specifically to them. And on account of their way of life, the tax collectors and sinners were shunned by most people, not only the Pharisees, most people shunned them. And a strict law keeper must have no fellowship with them at all. They especially could not dine together because that would mean ceremonial defilement. It's just like when Jesus was also in in the home of a Pharisee. And remember the woman who came with uh, the bottle of perfume and was poured over the feet? And this is what the Pharisee said about Jesus and that woman. If he was a prophet, he would know what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. In other words, they're saying, she's a sinner, but I'm not a sinner. She's unrighteous, but I'm righteous because I'm religious and because I keep the moral law and I keep the spoken law. So see, she is a sinner and we're not sinners. And sinners you don't invite to your home. You don't let them get close to you. So Jesus defied the orthodox conventions of the day by dining with a quizzling. Now the term quizzling was a term used a lot during World War II around 1940 to 45. It was used to refer to a politician who betrayed his country to the Nazis and became a puppet ruler. In other words, a traitor. You see the tax collector was looked at by the Jews to be a traitor to his nation by being a puppet of the Roman government. A traitor helps the enemy. And the Jewish tax collectors aided the Roman government, their enemy, against the nation of Israel. So they were, they were the worst that could be a traitor. Who wants to be around a traitor? Nobody wants to be around a traitor. But if you look at the last part of verse number 15, something interesting is is recorded here. It says in verse number 15, simply this, and they, it says, and they were following him. In other words, that these tax collectors and these sinners knew why they had been invited to the feast. Namely this, that Jesus might free them from their sins and induce them to lead different lives and follow Him. This was a serious group of people. This is the people who understood their sin, who saw themselves under God's condemnation, who knew they needed something, and Jesus was the answer. Jesus was the one who, look what He did to Levi. Levi could have been that one tax collector that everybody looked up to. And if he followed Jesus because of these reasons, what about me? 
I need to follow Jesus too. He's the only answer that I have. So Levi wants his invitation to his tax collectors and sinners to join him in his new life to which Jesus had brought him. He wants them to join him. And it it seems from this text that that's exactly what's happening here. They're joining him. Now, this infuriates the Pharisees because if you notice, there's a third thing that Jesus does to befriend a sinner, and it's this, that Jesus calls the most spiritually diseased to follow him. Spiritually diseased people need a cure, and they know it. Look in verse number 16. It says, And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now here is something that they became irate. Let me just back up for a minute and just mention to you some of the things that the Pharisees were disturbed about. Now the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who lived in Palestine during the time of Jesus. Now, these Jews were called by the people faithful ones because they did not want the secular Greek culture to influence the Jewish life or the Roman culture to influence the Jewish life in the wrong way. So the Pharisees actually played a significant role in Jewish life during the time of Jesus. And by the time of Jesus began... When he began his ministry, the Pharisees were widely recognized as religious leaders. Even the historian Josephus writes in his book, Antiquities, that the Pharisees were extremely influential among the townsfolk, and all prayers and sacred rites of divine worship were performed according to their exposition. In other words, the Pharisees were generally well-respected amongst the people during the time of Jesus. They were the go-to people when you had a religious question. They were the go-to people when you had an Old Testament question. They, actually, their lifestyle could be exemplified. The Pharisees lived according to the Word of God. They lived a lifestyle that was actually moral and upright. See, the Pharisees were generally separated. They separated themselves from society. In fact, the name Pharisee, which comes from the Hebrew word parush, means separated one. The Pharisees also were committed to the idea of two different forms of God's law. The first form was the written Torah, and of course, that would be include the writings of the Old Testament. But the second form was the oral, the oral Torah, included uh, laws and traditions that were passed down from generation to generation. So the Pharisees' belief in the authority of the oral law caused conflicts with the message Jesus and the apostles taught. If you look, just flip over to Mark chapter 7 for a moment and look at verse number 5. Just to give you an example. It says in verse number 5, the Pharisees Pharisees complained to Jesus in Mark 7 verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? 
instead of eating their food with unclean hands. So, see, that means the disciples were breaking some oral law, not necessarily the written law, the oral law. And then over to verse number 8 of Mark chapter 7, it says, you let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And then down to verse number 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you handed down. So see, this was the indictment Jesus had against the Pharisees, that their oral traditions actually nullified the word of God. That was his indictment against them. That means because the Pharisees put so much emphasis on their interpretation of the law, they neglected to see God's true message for all the people. To make matters worse, many of the Pharisees interpreted the law in a way that distorted God's original laws for the Israelites. In fact, the rules and regulations of the Pharisees were so numerous They say their oral law contains 613 commandments. 248 were positive and 365 were negative. However, people who followed the rules completely were in danger of concluding that their behavior on earth was enough to satisfy God's commands and give them entryway into the kingdom of God. In other words, they thought they were moral. They thought they honored God by the way they lived. They thought they were righteous before God's eyes by keeping the moral and the written law, because a lot of the written law, a lot of, a lot of the oral law was to offense around the written law so they wouldn't fall over. So it, it got so numerous. See, to live as a Pharisee therefore, was to commit one's life to a radical separation and to live in accordance with an enormous list of do's and don'ts. And the conclusion to that was this. They consider themselves righteous because of that. When a Pharisee began to believe that they were without sin, they did not have to depend on God's mercy to save them And the Bible, of course, teaches that as a type of thinking that is ultimately wrong because they depended on their own righteousness, not the righteousness of God. So that's why this is brought up back in Mark chapter 2. If you want to turn back there, that's why that's brought up here. Because now there's going to be a contrast between Jesus and his disciples and Levi and the Pharisees the scribes of the Pharisees. Because for the Pharisee, a sinner is not only one who is not free from sin, but is one who is not careful in their observance of ceremonial duties. They're unobservant, and they become irreligious persons, living lives contrary to the divine law. So see, the scribes of the Pharisees, and they were the scribes were usually the ones who were the lawyers. They were the ones who were really into the haggling over the details. The Pharisaic scribes began 
they had a question for Jesus, but they did not question Jesus directly. I don't think they were brave enough to do that. They questioned his disciples. Now, most likely, they did not enter into Levi's house, but waited outside and addressed them with the question as they came out of the house. And what's the question? Look at verse number 16. In verse number 16 of chapter 2, here's the question. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, not to Jesus, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he doing that? Doesn't he know better? If he's a rabbi, he would know better. See, by that question, they were accusing Jesus of not only shunning sinners, as he should have, as a rabbi, instead, he should have known he was defiling himself and contaminating himself. So the Pharisaic scribes considered themselves righteous men who did not see any spiritually healing effects of Jesus' teaching. And according to his behavior, it proved that. That if he really was a teacher of the law, he would not be dining with tax collectors and sinners. He should know better. However, they did not see that they were worse sinners than the ones they despised. Their blindness closed themselves off to the righteousness of God that saves. The righteousness of God that saves. And the reason for that is because they established their own righteousness. And that's the danger for all people who consider themselves good people. That's the danger of all people who consider themselves moral people and upright people. That you could have established your own righteousness thinking that you really are not a sinner before God and God should look at your life and how well you live it and pass over you. Wrong. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They established their own righteousness. Written law-keeping and oral law-keeping. They saw themselves as strong and able and spiritually healthy. And as far as they were concerned, they were not sick and they didn't need a physician. In fact, the passages that I read to you just in Mark chapter 7, again, what did they do? They nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep their tradition. And then they invalidated the Word of God by their tradition that was handed down to them. And many other things they did. And then, of course, remember what Paul said to the Romans. The Roman believers, he says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. When someone believes in Christ, that the righteousness that gets one into the kingdom of God is not 
the righteousness of an individual believer because they keep the moral law or because they're a good person or because they do this and that that are good things. No, we get into the kingdom of God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ in which we enter by repentance and faith. That is the only way to be right with God. There's no other way. So every sinner needs an alien righteousness that is given to them by Jesus Christ that makes them justified before God and able to stand before God and escape His judgment. That's the only thing that can possibly do it. So that means this, that the mission of Jesus Christ becomes crystallized in verse 17. And we're going to look at that. See, this is the mission of Jesus, that he came into the world as a physician of souls. And as a physician, Jesus was deeply concerned of the disease gripping those with whom he ate. He came to carry out the mission of a healer. And look at the passage with me in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, and you see for yourself, Jesus' response to the critic's question. And hearing this, Jesus overheard the question, said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. See, the irony of the text is this. The Pharisees the religiously moral and upright were just as needy as the spiritual doctor, in need of a spiritual doctor and healing and medicine as the tax collectors and the wicked, as the sinners. The healthy cannot condemn a doctor for going to the sick. That's what he does. If a doctor didn't hang around sick people, he would be out of a job. He would be useless. If Jesus did not go among sinners, he would be useless. And you know what? If we don't go among sinners as believers, we're useless too. And we're in danger of being a Pharisee. So we have to be careful about that. Jesus came to bring spiritual healing to the ungodly, to the unholy, to the spiritually blind and dead sinners. So who are the dubious? Who are the despicable? Who are the spiritually diseased? Well, it's, it's you and me. It's you and I. I don't know which way to say it. One English teacher says this, one English teacher says that, I don't know. You get the point. We can never forget from where the Lord has delivered us. Jesus brought us from the slave market of sin and then brought us into an intimate fellowship with Him as our Master and as our Savior, as our Lord. So you see, the real, real, real scandal of grace is that Jesus can turn us into what we were intended to be. And what is that? Mature image bearers of, that reflect the glory of God. All this is made possible by scandalous grace and his choice to be the friend of sinners. That Levi, actually, it's interesting that Matthew actually means gift of God. 
So Levi goes from, actually Matthew is, what happened to Levi? He became an apostle. He became a writer of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you want theology, go to the Gospel of Matthew where it portrays Jesus Christ as who? As king. It's an incredible gospel. It has details in, in Matthew that's in no other place. So he becomes this despicable, unwanted tax collector, despised by all who looked at him and never want, no one wanted anything to do with him. And Jesus invites him to follow him. And Jesus makes him what he never thought he could be, an apostle and a writer of a an incredible gospel called Matthew. And, and not only that, somebody who writes a gospel must be a theologian too, to understand deep theology and be able to communicate it and have it written down for all those who could read it and hear it preached. So see, what's the question for us today? The question for us is, do you love sinners? Do you care for sinners? Do you reach out to sinners? Do you serve sinners? Ask yourself, am I loving and serving sinners like Jesus did? Or have you insulated yourself so as to be reluctant to befriend certain kinds of sinners? What people do you think Jesus would hang out with today? You think we he'd, we find him in a place that we would not expect? I think he would be hanging out with prostitutes and be unaffected. Remember, when Jesus hung out with people, it wasn't birds of a feather flock together. Jesus was there with a message a, a mission and a message, and so should we. He would be hanging out with homosexuals. He would be hanging out with thieves and drunkards and druggards and gang members. I'm just going to the other end of the spectrum. And all the sinners of all types in between. And he'd be around the good people, too, the religious people who think that they're all right and they go to church and everything's fine. They did all their sacraments and they're on their way to heaven. He'd be with those, too. See, we, know, we all know people who need the gospel. So does knowing the unsaved are spiritually, terminally sick and the gospel offers salvation from sin and death, motivate you for evangelism and missions? It should motivate you for evangelism and missions. And I think it should do something else. It should cause us to appreciate to such a high extent the grace of God that was extended to you to save you and save me that we, we could never get over it. We could never get over God's grace. We should sing about it. We should think about it. We should talk about it. Because that's what's happening. It's the grace of God. So let me return to where I began. In order to hedge against a pharisaical mindset in our practical everyday lives, we must 
remain cognizant of unbelievers that are all around us and passing us by every day. You have family members you've never spoken the word of God to. You never told them about the gospel. You have neighbors that you have never spoken the gospel to. You had people in your life that maybe you think are a little bit out there and too far away to get close to, and so you don't invite them. You don't talk with them about anything. So we need to change that. But to change that, we have to be strong. We have a multitude of different cultures around us. Again, we know people who are hurting and lonely. We know people who think they're doing fine and at the same time realizing they are on a slippery slide right into hell. And what do they need? They need the gospel. They need the cure. They need Jesus, the physician, that can heal them. That's who they need. And you're the ones, and I'm the ones, to take it to those people. So our desire should be to grow strong enough spiritually that we will not be repulsed by or influenced by the sinner's behavior or attitude or speech or anything about them so that we can reach out to people that are in at our work, our neighbors, our unsafe family members, and go out to dine with them and attend events with them and be involved with them without compromising our commitment to the community of believers and without compromising the Word of God, and without being influenced by their lifestyle, or their language, or their philosophy of life, or their worldview. See, that's what God calls us to do, but you've got to be strong. And the only thing that's going to make you strong is the Word. We are to be sanctified by truth enough in order to influence others for Christ while we live here on this disposable, dark, sin-cursed earth. Because it's not the end. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth someday where righteousness dwells. Amen? See, God's calling us to this very principle. To reach the lost, you have to be with the lost, and you must share the gospel. I need to hear it. I need to get a kick in my pants. And so do you. And I pray that it would be a kick in your pants today. Spiritually speaking. And I pray that we would all be very aware that the person that you have contact with tomorrow at work, you're the voice. If you're in an office and you're the only Christian, you're the voice! Or if there's just two Christians and a whole bunch of one, you're the voice. You're, they're looking at your lifestyle. They're looking at your words. So you got to get to them. you got to share with them. And don't be concerned about their response. Don't be concerned about their rejection. Don't be concerned that they curse you from, you know, sealing the cellar. Don't be concerned about that. That's all, the re- that's all normal reaction. Because you don't know if you share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they begin, you begin to challenge and bring their mind to a crisis point where they begin to think, you know what, I could die tonight. Or the next funeral they go to, they say, that could be me. And they begin to think, where am I going to go when I die? See, that's what the gospel does. It causes a crisis in the mind to bring someone to ask the right questions and bring them to the right physician. Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could heal us spiritually.
And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, thank you today for your word. Lord, make us these kind of people. Lord, let us take your example today, not only of what you, how you treated and how you responded to these people that were despised by the culture, despised by the people, despised by the religious leaders and the respected classes of the day. And you called them to follow you. You gave them the teaching of the gospel. And Lord, they did come and follow you. I pray, Lord, you would use us to be the mouthpieces to bring the gospel to those who've never heard it. Please do that in our hearts, Lord. Allow us to lead someone to Christ. Allow us to share the gospel with someone who's never heard it. Allow us to do it this week and not put it off and not forget. And Lord, allow us to arrange our lives so we include sinners in it as we grow more in the Lord and we get further and further away from their particular groups. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the ingenuity to find ways to be in contact with them and bring them the gospel. And I pray you would save some. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's